Amen. We have feasted this morning, haven't we? Please turn in your Bibles to Revelation 8. As we continue in our series of messages on the book of Revelation, we had finished last week with the seventh seal opening, which leads us to verse 6. The seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And the first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood. And they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. And the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, and a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel, some of the old manuscripts say an eagle, flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Now, two events color all of the rest of the destiny of God's people. One event is the coming of Christ for his saints, the translation of the church, the body of Christ, to glory. And the second event is the coming of Christ with his saints. When he comes to establish his kingdom and set up his kingdom on the earth. So you have these two events and between them is a period of great judgment and great tribulation on the earth. And that period of tribulation is characterized by what is represented in the, in the seven First the seven seals, and then the seven trumpets, and then the seven bulls of wrath. And they're simply pictures given to John the Apostle on the island of Patmos about how God is going to pour out his wrath upon the world in the future between the time of the coming of Christ for his saints and the time of the coming of Christ with his saints after we have been united to him and we return in our new bodies for reigning with him. Now hold your hand here and go back to Matthew 24, which is one of the keys to understanding these central chapters of the book of Revelation. Matthew chapter 24 and beginning in verse 15, Jesus gives us a key to understanding all of this, part of the key. And it is here in verse 15. Look at it carefully. You remember that everything in chapter 24 is an answer to the question of the disciples about when 
will these things your coming be? And notice Jesus' key, verse 15. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, meaning pay special attention to that. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Then let him who is on the housetop. Now look at verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. What that means is that not until the Antichrist is revealed and he goes into the restored temple in Jerusalem and abominates or desecrates the temple, then the fullness of God's wrath will be let out upon the earth. So everything we're seeing up to this point is just the beginning of sorrows. Very important for you to understand that. And when you come to Revelation chapter 15 and verse 1, you see this very clearly. He says, then I saw another sign in heaven. This is right before the bowl judgments. Great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. And now look at that phrase. There's the key. For in them the wrath of God is complete. So we're still talking about the beginning of sorrows. And what we see in the seven trumpets is not the end of God's wrath. That won't come till the seven bowls. Folks, it gets even worse than the seals judgments and the trumpet judgments. But let's notice them. In the seven seals, you see the seven things, the seven steps which always lead to the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. Whether it's in Matthew, whether it's in Revelation. And those seven seals are these. First is peace. Remember the white horse. Second is blood and war. Great war upon the earth. Third is famine. Fourth is pestilence. Remember the chloros. Uh, horse, the green horse. And then fifth is persecution, the saints under the altar crying out, we've been martyred, when will there be justice? Sixth warning signs. And then the seventh seal represents God's final visitation. Those are always, they're never violated. Those are the seven steps to coming to God's kingdom. Peace, war, famine, pestilence, persecution, warning signs from heaven, and final visitation. And in every one of God's outpourings of wrath, those seven things lead to the establishment. All the sevens, the seven seals, and the seven trumpets, and the seven uh, bulls, which are represented in these middle chapters of Revelation, are divided into fours and threes. And here you see it again in chapter, uh, chapter 8. The first four trumpets are given in this passage, and then the angel, or the eagle representing the angel, flies through the midst of heaven in verse 13 and says, Woe, woe, woe. The three woe trumpet blasts represent an increase in judgment, and they're called the woe trumpets, five, six, and seven. So only the first four are dealt with here, then there's a slight division, and then the three. Let's look at the four of the trumpets. First trumpet in verse 7 is hail and fire followed, mingle with blood, and thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees are burned, and all the green grass is burned. Now, throughout the Word of God, hail represents the sudden, sharp judgment of God. 
If you have ever been in a sudden or serious hailstorm, you will understand how quickly hail can come. It freezes in the atmosphere and falls quickly. A sudden turn of events. Hail followed by fire mingled with blood. So the first trumpet represents a period of time on earth. Now remember, the church is translated. Christ has already come for us. But on the earth, there is unspared evidence of the wrath of God. And it is hail followed by fire mingled with blood. That is war. Sudden, sharp war breaks out. And this is evidence of the wrath of God all over the world. Secondly... The second angel blows his trumpet in verse 8. And look at this. Something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. Something like a great mountain. Now, one of the, the tests in trying to understand the book of Revelation is discerning which is symbolic and which is not symbolic. But this is very clear, it seems to me. The great mountain is something like a great mountain. Something like a great mountain burning with fire is thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea becomes blood. Now, in the first trumpet, notice that the effect of war is that a third of the trees are burned up. That And trees nearly always represent the pride of man. And all green grass is burned up, representing the flower of youth. A third of the world, the green grass, young men are called to war. And in the second trumpet sounding, it's a great mountain burning and a third and thrown into the sea and a third of the living creatures and a third of the ships are destroyed, affecting commerce and the life of the sea. Now, what could this mountain be? Let's get a tip on this and go back to the book of Jeremiah. God is prophesying that when this, this beginning of sorrows unfolds, something is going to happen. We, I'm not even going to speculate. I'm not a speculator when it comes to prophecy, but I want you to understand this. Jeremiah chapter 51 will give you a clue. Turn to Jeremiah 51. Jeremiah 51. And in verse 24, God says, I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea, for all the evil they have done in Zion in your sight, says the Lord. Now look at verse 25. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain. He refers to Chaldea and Babylon as a destroying mountain who destroys all the earth. So as God uses the concept of a mountain, I, and because this passage says it is something like a great mountain, I take this to mean that suddenly in this tribulation period, some great power on the earth will collapse and its collapse will affect the life of the sea and will affect commerce, which is represented by the ships. One third of the sea becomes blood. One-third of the creatures in the sea and one-third of the ships. There will be the fall of a great power, of a great power. Something like what happened in the fall of the USSR. 
but we know that its fall will affect commerce even in a greater way than what the fall of the USSR has affected it. Now, the third trumpet is a great star in verse 10. The third angel sounds the trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven. Now, if you go back to chapter 1 of Revelation, the stars are the pastor teachers. They're the religious leaders. And when the great star falls, burning like a torch, it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water, and the name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made better. Now, if the star is a pasta teacher, and it is called Wormwood because it poisons the rest of the rivers and the waters. Now, generally throughout the scripture, the rivers and the waters are what gives life, truth which gives life. If a pastor teacher falls, this has to represent a great religious leader who, who is apostate and does not teach the truth, but he is so well recognized and so well known that he poisons a third of all the waters by his apostate teaching. Now, folks, we're living in a day when everybody's right and anything goes and everybody has a right to their own beliefs. And I would stand for the priesthood of the believer until the day Jesus comes. I believe I have a right to understand the Bible and you have a right to understand the Bible. I laughed when I saw Amy Andrews' article the other day and she was talking and, and, and the article said that, uh, that conservatives are those people who do not believe individuals have a right to interpret the Bible for themselves. Now, somebody has misguided her because I'm a conservative and that is not me. Do you hear what I'm saying? But then you don't read everything you, I mean, you don't believe everything you read in the paper, do you? <laughs> Certainly not when they try to turn theologians, bless her heart. And she's a good girl, but, but I, I need to give her a theological lesson. I believe that you have a right to interpret the Bible for yourself. But that does not alter the fact that truth is truth, and there is heresy, and there is error. The right to interpret the Bible does not mean that everybody is right. There's a difference between being right and having a right. You know, I have the right to drive off the side of a mountain, but that doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. Do you understand? And so I believe that every Christian under the guidance of the Holy Spirit has a right to understand the Bible for himself. But at the same time, hear me now, there is apostasy in the pulpit. There are preachers and teachers who do not teach the truth and do not preach the truth. And there is such a thing as heresy. And it is our business to know heresy when we see it. And in the tribulation time, hear me, there will be a great religious leader, a star, who will poison the life-giving power of truth because he will lead many people to deny truth by his false teaching. And there will be folks who will not understand that and will fall for what he teaches. When you move from this place, you ought to go to your pastor the first thing and ask three things. If you want to know something about a, a teacher, whether he's a Wormwood or not, uh, that'd make a great novel, wouldn't it? Dr. Wormwood. <laughs> uh, you know, I ought to write that novel. I could really 
I can see it coming on. But you, if, you, if you ever get transferred and you go to another church or you ever feel like this church is not meeting your needs and you've got to go somewhere else in order to have your needs met, you better ask three questions of that pastor. Number one, always ask, what do you believe about the Word of God? Tell me what you believe about the nature of Scripture and what do you believe about the Word of God? Always ask that question. Don't join a church without finding out what the pastor believes about the Word of God. And if you join this church by faith, I'm telling you what I believe. I believe the Bible is fully inspired. There's no error in the Bible. And if we don't understand it, just hold on. Truth will come. Amen? I don't believe in mechanical dictation, but I do believe that God fully inspired all of the Bible, and it is fully authoritative, and I believe the miracles, and I believe them without reservation in my heart. Now, the second question you ought to ask a pastor, what does he believe about salvation and redemption? And are all men saved or will some be lost? Because that's the test of universalism. And you ought to know what he believes. Because I'm going to tell you something, folks, there are wormwoods in our midst who believe that everybody's going to be saved and Jesus is going to save everybody. And I wish that were true, but when I read the book of Revelation, I am telling you God's divine wrath is upon those who refuse to acknowledge His grace and mercy and peace in Jesus Christ. Now, the third question you ought to ask a pastor, if you want to get a fix on who he is and what he believes and, uh, and how he operates, you want to ask him about the Word of God, you want to ask him about salvation and redemption, and I'm going to clue you, Ask him, what does he believe about prophecy? Because if those three things are generally lined up with truth, then his concept of the church and his concept of, about other things will generally fall in place if you believe the Bible, you believe salvation, and you have an idea that Jesus is literally coming back. That's a sine qua non know what that pastor believes. But the wormwood falls and he poisons the rivers representing the sources of truth and life in the world so that this world under the wrath of God has an even more difficult time understanding what it is God is teaching because a great star fell. And when he fell, he poisoned the truth. Now the fourth trumpet is found in verse 12. The fourth angel sounded the trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, and a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. The last, the sky and the heavens are darkened. What would you expect? If the church is removed as a source of truth in the world, and if whoever is remaining is a pastor teacher, a great religious leader who is considered an authority on truth, if he falls from heaven and poisons the preaching of truth during the tribulation period, look at the effect this has upon the world. And the darkening of the fourth trumpet is the effect of the fall of wormwood and the effect of the decline of truth. 
Somebody says to me, why, why with all this preaching that we have today, why should we keep on distributing the truth? And I'll tell you why. Because I believe that we ought to take the resources we have and by radio, by television, by books, by every means possible, we should distribute the truth of God and saturate the world before Jesus comes so there'll be residual truth remaining during the tribulation time when the fourth trumpet is sounded and truth is scarce and the skies are darkened and the moon is darkened and the sun is darkened representing there's a cloud over the earth because there's a scarcity of truth and darkness reigns among men. Now listen to me very carefully. While at that time during this age before Christ comes for us, the church, I believe we ought to preach the gospel every way we can, touch as many people as we can. I believe in radio and television. You would be amazed if you understood how many people watch our television ministry. And you would be amazed how many people from churches that don't hear truth depend on programs like ours to hear the Word of God. Now, I'm not saying I'm the only repository of truth. I am saying that I try to preach the whole counsel of God, and I am accountable to you and everybody else who hears me. And if I don't preach the truth, they'll be on my case, and you'll be on my case. Amen? Amen? Well, I know it because you are. <laughs> But it's a great ministry and it touches and it feeds a lot of people who don't have the opportunity you have to walk into a service like this every Sunday morning. You'd be amazed. But hear me. One of the most effective ways to leave truth on this earth when the church has been raptured and there are no more TV programs or radio programs much and the source of truth is changed Books and the printed word, the copies of the word of God and the commentaries and the books explaining the truth of the word will become even more critical because they will remain on earth as silent witnesses to truth when the fourth trumpet sounds and a third of the sun is darkened and a third of the moon is darkened. And that is one reason why the printed word looms ever more important as we near the time of the beginning of sorrows. Do you understand what I'm saying? So we have the four trumpets, the hail, the great mountain, a kingdom is cast into the sea, then a great star falls, and all the earth falls darkly under a sun and a moon that are one-third quieted. And then verse 13 says... I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, indicating there are three more trumpets to come and each is a woe trumpet. And those are the things, the fifth in chapter 9 and, and 10 and 11 and 12. But I want us to stop for a moment. I want to make two applications that you should not miss in this great text. The full day of God's wrath is still future. As bad as these four trumpet judgments are, I now refer you again to Revelation 15, 1, when the beginning of the fullness of God's wrath is poured out on the earth. Keep in mind, it is still future. 
But secondly, notice in these four trumpets of judgment that there is a mixture of mercy in all of them. Isn't that just like God? You know, every time you read Malachi, you read Jeremiah, you read Isaiah, here is the prophecy of judgment and mixed right in is God's prophecy of mercy. I love to read Malachi. Because as he tells about how God's going to destroy them, but I'm going to come back and set up my kingdom. He's always showing his mercy commensurate with his judgment and his justice. And God's nature and God's character is wonderfully revealed in the book of Revelation, which is one of the reasons why it has to be a true prophetic book. Because in the midst of this judgment, notice something. I don't know whether you notice what I kept emphasizing to you. But notice verse 7. A third of the trees are burned. Notice in verse 8. A third of the sea became blood. Verse 9. A third of the living creatures... A third of the ships, verse 10. A third of the rivers were affected, verse 11. A third of the waters became wormwood, verse 12. A third of the moon, a third of the sun, a third of the stars, a third were darkened. What does that mean to you? You know what that says to me? Why did God spare the two-thirds? Why did he spare the two-thirds? Do you know why? Because that is the character of God. He doesn't just reveal his justice. When God's justice and judgment are revealed, he always reveals at the same time his mercy. And you see, he doesn't destroy the two-thirds because the two-thirds represent the mercy of God still on this earth in the middle of the tribulation period. To me, that is one of the greatest things in the book of Revelation, that throughout this book in the tribulation period, God is still showing his mercy. And his mercy matches his justice. That is why in the book of James we read that mercy rejoices against judgment. Thank God for the cross. Because there, mercy rejoices against the judgment of God and the justice of God. Now I want to burn that into your mind today because most people don't understand that. They don't understand the nature of God. They compare God with the way we express wrath or we express judgment, or we express justice. If you get mad, you're mad. There's no mercy. But see, when God reveals his wrath, he is still at the same time revealing his mercy because God is not a single emotion God. He's not a single attribute God. At the same time he shows his justice by executing wrath, he shows his mercy by restraining his wrath and destroying only one-third of the world. Does that make sense to you? Now, I can illustrate that. Um, if you and I were more like God, we would show more mercy when we demonstrate our anger. But because we're human, we either show mercy or anger. That's why, you know, when I, I'm counseling people, I'm dealing with guilt manipulators. You ever know a guilt manipulator? 
like a mother-in-law who makes you feel guilty because you don't call her every week or come every Sunday afternoon for dinner. You only come every fourth Sunday. And she said, nobody ever comes to see me. All the other children come. Why don't you? You know what that's called? That's called guilt manipulation. <laughs> Some of us do it, don't we? Amen? If you identify yourself, ask God to, for help. That's a good way to drive people away from you. But anyway, there, you see, people who are guilt manipulators have a difficult time understanding how you can say, no, I'll come when I can and at the same time love them. That's why firm love is so difficult for people to understand. If you love me, you give me everything I want. If you love me, you'll do this, this. No, no, no. Sometimes true love restrains justice or judgment. Sometimes true love restrains itself, and mercy is a restraint on the justice of God. Now, I'm going to give you several illustrations of that because I want to drive this home to you out of this passage. Now, this week, two boys who came out of the Tlingit Indian tribe in southeastern Alaska. Did you follow the story? Have you followed it? Last August, two Indian boys, two boys from the Tlingit tribe in southeastern uh, Alaska, um, two boys robbed a pizza man in, uh, where was it? Some, in one town in Washington, wasn't it? Anybody? How many of you saw that story? Okay, they robbed two boys. I, I mean, the two boys robbed a 28-year-old pizza delivery man. Now, folks, they only got, what was it, $43. But they took a baseball bat and beat him like so much violence today. They senselessly, mercilessly beat him for no reason. I mean, you know, if you got the money and you got the pizza, run. Leave the guy alone, right? If I was going to steal a, uh, rob a pizza man, uh, why would you beat him senselessly, mercilessly in the head? He, he will never be able to work again. He, he will be dependent the rest of his life. And the pizza man was 28 years old. The boys were only 17. And when they took them to jail, the Tlingit tribe elders said, wait a minute, we will take responsibility for two of our own. And you turn them over to us and we will deal with them. And did you see what they did? They took these two 18-year-old boys they gave them a little booth and two weeks of food and they put them on an uninhabited island out in the ocean for one full year. They have to exist on their own and take responsibility for themselves. And that's part of their punishment. And then when they come back, then they will still face the tribal elders and they still face the judge and while they're gone, they have to cut lumber for logs to build the pizza man a house free of charge so that he'll have a place to live for the rest of his life. I don't know about you, but I wanted to stand up and go, hooray for the tribe. Give it to them. I just feel like the forgotten people in most crimes are the victims. Now... Understand what's going on here. Justice would have been to beat those boys with a baseball bat like they mercilessly beat that pizza man. 
That's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, do all of you understand what I just said? Justice says, give those boys all they deserve. That's justice. And I was witnessing to a man down here at Vineyard Apartments one time. He said, I don't need God's mercy. All I want is justice. Man, you don't want justice. Anybody here want justice? If you had justice from God, you're in serious shape because God would pour out on you rather than on Christ at the cross all that you deserve. Now, I want every boy, I want every child to understand this because I'm about to give you a concept that nobody in this church should miss. Justice says, give the offender all he deserves. And if those two Indian boys had gotten justice, they would have been beaten with baseball bats. That's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But mercy says, don't give them all they deserve. Don't give them all they deserve. Put them on an island and let them work to help the victim of their crime rather than you and, and me having to pay for it for the rest, uh, rest of our lives. But grace says when they're done, they will have learned something in the process of showing mercy to their victim. They will have learned something they could never have learned in a penitentiary, right? Responsibility. And they, by the grace of God, will come out better young men after one year of trying to fend for themselves by eating snakes and facing black bear. Have you ever eaten bear meat? How many of you have ever eaten bear meat? I wouldn't want to live on that the rest of my life. I've had bear meat. And I had bear meat, miss meat pie one time up in New Brunswick, Canada. Boy, that was good. Anybody here ever make miss meat pie anymore? Bear meat, mincemeat pie. It was delicious. But bear meat, but anyway, they've got to fend for themselves. So justice says, give them all they deserve. Mercy says, don't give them all they deserve. And grace says, give them what they don't deserve. Now understand the nature of God. At one and the same time, God is pouring out his wrath upon the earth and giving on whom he will have mercy, mercy, but he's executing wrath, his justice, giving men, giving earth what it deserves. But he restrains two-thirds, that's mercy. He gives them what they don't deserve. He offers them the gospel of the kingdom. There is an expression of grace in every age because that is God's nature. Now, if you want to understand those three theological ideas, you must understand that, kids. You understand that justice says, give them what they deserve. Mercy says, don't give them all they deserve. And grace says, give them what they don't deserve. Back when our youngest son, John, was about 11 years old, I did something independent of my wife that probably was unwise, but I did it. I'm confessing as well as illustrating here. I went out and bought a little Honda motorcycle. I wanted all my kids to know what it was like to ride a motorcycle before they got big enough and unwise enough or old enough to go buy a big Harley Davidson and try to get on the highway without any experience and get creamed. And I suspect that there was just a wee little bit of the little boy coming out in me. I wanted one for myself too. So I got John a little 
125cc's uh, Honda motorbike. And he could ride it up and down the driveway, but you know, after a while, he gets tired of the driveway, and guess where he was riding it? On the road. And of course, our road's a dead-end road, and you know, you can keep the spirit of the law by keeping them off peace-saving road, but you, you obey the spirit of the law if you just don't let them go past the stop sign. Don't tell the policeman I said this, but... And uh, my wife despised that motorcycle from the day that came to our house. It created tension in our home, and I had to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit when I was around her, and she saw that motorcycle. But the kids all learned how to ride a motorcycle. I thought it was better for them to do it under a controlled situation. I don't press that too far, but I thought it was better for them to learn under a controlled situation. But that became a great source because John, uh, of, of friction because John learned that if he could walk that thing on the public roads and ride it over behind Raymond Hayes' house and pass behind the Allspaw's house over here, walking across Peace Haven, that the church parking lot was private property, but it was a great place to ride a 125cc Honda motorbike when you're 12 years old. And so just imagine with me. I tell him, I warn him, son, if I ever catch you riding that thing on Peace Haven Road, I want you to understand I'm going to sell or give away that motorbike. Now, I'm promising you, don't let me catch you. And one day, one day, as I start to pull out of this parking lot after office hours, and I see a motorbike crossing Peace Haven Road, and I see a very familiar head and a very familiar body, and I know that body, I know that head, I know that motorbike, and I'd pull up beside it and I'd catch him and I'd say, son, what are you doing riding that on Peace Haven Road? Oh, he says, dad, I was hoping you wouldn't be around. I didn't see your car in the parking lot. Well, tough, I'm here. Son, get home. That motorbike is on the block. And so home we go. And uh, furthermore, I'm going to minister a little bit more justice. Up into the room we go, son, and ten wax with a belt. One, two, three, he's crying. Four, five, I'm crying. Six, I can't give him any more. I promised him ten, but I can't give him any more. And I go down to the study, and he forgets everything that has happened in 30 minutes. I go up, how you doing, John? Oh, great, Dad. Everything's fine. Man, I'm hurting inside. I want to tell you, kids, when your parents say it hurts me worse to do this than it hurts you, there really is something to that. And you'll never understand that until you get to be a parent. Isn't that right, moms and dads? Isn't that right, grandparents? This is Grandparents Day. All you grandparents, shake your head. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And so I say, son, I know you love Dairy Queen chocolate milkshakes. And let's get in the car and go for a ride. They say, oh boy, Dad, let's go. And so we ride over to Dairy Queen and we get a delicious, thick, rich, creamy chocolate milkshake just slides down. Cold and refreshing. Delicious. 
Now, justice says, give him 10 whacks. That's what he deserves. And sell that motorbike. Mercy says, don't give him all he deserves. Only give him six. And grace says, give him what he doesn't deserve. A chocolate milkshake. Isn't God good? In the middle of the tribulation period, he's perfectly justified in pouring out his wrath on the earth. He says, hold it right there, only one-third, only one-third. You know, I don't care where you've been or what you've done. I want to tell you something about the God I serve, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is always in every age a God of mercy. The psalmist said, thy mercy endures from generation to generation. There is not a redeemed sinner in this building this morning that wants God to unload his justice on him. Every one of us are recipients of the mercy of God. He has restrained himself from giving us all we deserve. And he has given us grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that mercy is still available in its richest, rarest, purest form to anybody who will come confessing sin and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, he'll be showing mercy in that day. But it's just for two-thirds. I want to give you an invitation to praise God for his mercy to you. And then an invitation to those of you who don't know Christ to claim his mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you do it? Let's stand in prayer. Our Father in heaven, I thank you and praise you for your mercy and for who you are and what you are. And today I ask that you will call us in the midst of our adversity, in the midst of our tribulation, to look at our suffering in light of your mercy and your grace. And then I pray that you will bring conviction to every sinner without Jesus Christ. And let that sinner see the cross. That there at the cross you demonstrated how much you loved us and you showed us your mercy. You didn't give us all the punishment we deserved. You put it on Christ and then you gave us eternal life and eternal hope. And that we didn't deserve. That's grace. In Jesus' name, amen.